Welcome to the Plant Cunning Podcast, where we explore a relationship to plants, other people, and the mysteries of nature. Coming to you from the High Allegheny Plateau in central New York, we are your hosts, A.C. Staubel and Isaac Hill. Episode 16, Finding Your Small Farm Business Niche with Kate Miller of Weathertop Farm. In this episode, we speak with Kate about how she first got into farming after working with Vandana Shiva in India about her first farmer's market experience, and all the trials and tribulations of being a small farmer, about what she does now, making value-added products, and how to be adaptable in a constantly changing world. I hope you enjoy the episode. Okay, today we have Kate Miller from Weathertop Farm in Sharon Springs in New York on the podcast with us. Welcome, Kate. Hi, how are you? We're doing great. How are you doing? I am good. It's really cold, uh, like single digits here. So okay. uh, I'm delighted to have a wood stove kind of roasting behind me. So that's great. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we've been cranking ours too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess the first traditional question for the Plant Cutting Podcast is often, what brought you to the plant path? So we'll start there. Wow. Um, So I have a really, (laughs) really convoluted um, sort of path to plants. Um, I think sometimes people feel immediately drawn and are are doing what they need to do at a very young age where I have had kind of a a whole series of careers um, through the last, you know, 20 years. that I guess all kind of fall into three different categories. Um, initially, really, I did a lot of work around supporting people in their communities, whether that is uh, people with disabilities, um, people who were post-incarceration. Um, I did a lot of early intervention work with teens trying to prevent incarceration. And then I also did a lot of work around food in general, um, food service, uh, you know, waitressing and uh, bartending kind of um, front of the house jobs, but also uh, back in the kitchen. I have a degree in um, professional baking and cooking. And so I've worked in kitchens for years and then food as medicine really became more important to me, particularly after I started farming and growing food. And then the third sort of career path that I've had has been um, around advocacy and activism. I have a master's degree in sustainable development with a focus on policy advocacy, which is basically activism. Um, And really what I focused on there particularly was activism around food, food justice, food access. Um, And as part of my degree, I went to India and I worked with an anti-GMO pro-organic activist uh, named Vandana Shiva. So I, yeah, 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 you're familiar with her. She's amazing. Um, One of the most incredible powerhouse people I've ever spent time with in my life. And I was really lucky to spend six months with her in her New Delhi office primarily, but also taking trips up to the farm that she runs, which is in the foothills of the Himalaya. Um, So it was gorgeous and beautiful. And I would sometimes go up there with groups of students 
or just go up there and meet with interns and people that were working on the farm. And I think for me, that's really where my real path to farming started. Um, Because when I was younger, as a teenager, my parents had moved from New York City to upstate New York, about three, four hours north of the city. And it was, I was absolutely devastated to come here. I hated it. (laughs) It was like, it was cold and it was boring and it was quiet and it was all the things that I wasn't used to and all my neighbors were farmers and um, mostly primarily dairy farms at that time and I told myself I would never be a farmer and I kind of (laughs) left here when I was 16 um, with fire on my heels saying I would never come back and for a lot of years I didn't I mean I worked um I lived in England and in Ireland for many years and, you know, then India and Vermont and all around and kept saying I never would come back here and be a farmer. And then in India, that's when it really started changing a little bit. And when I moved back and was writing my thesis for my degree, I started just growing some vegetables that year, vegetables and herbs. I wanted to sort of, in, you know, get a little bit deeper into my inquiry about herbs and plants, but also just make a little extra money while I was doing my thesis. I wanted to be able to do something that was really flexible and let me work when I needed to on my thesis, but also, you know, gain a little money and do something I enjoyed. And, um, and for me, that worked. I had access to land. I was incredibly lucky that my parents had farmland that I could use and tractors, you know? So, um, so I had no idea what I was doing, none whatsoever, because growing up around farmers, um, strangely doesn't actually teach you how to be a farmer. (laughs) You don't naturally know how to like milk a cow. Right, exactly. (laughs) How to feed animals or use a tractor. I, I didn't know any of those things. And, um, so it, I had access to stuff, but really like zero knowledge base. And the, the farming that I was learning in India, um, the focus of the farm uh, in India was um, primarily around seed saving, around creating seed banks for yeah. farmers to access. Um, so it was very, um, it was very labor intensive. It was extremely like micro farms on tiny little plots of land. Um, and, you know, and with the focus being growing things out to seed rather than specifically for, you know, food or some other, other products. So, um, so yeah, I came back here and started growing stuff. And by the time I presented my thesis, um, I decided that I didn't want to advocate on behalf of farmers. I wanted to be a farmer and, you know, advocate for myself. So it was this really kind of strange um, progression that was by no means planned. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. But yeah, it became something that I was really um, passionate about and and was super lucky to have the access to those things. Um, I mean, given my skill set, had I been trying to uh, rent land and have like huge you know much more overhead I probably would never have made it past the first year or two um you know because it just yeah I made like no money (laughs) 
I made really no money. Um, but but it was it was rewarding and it was wonderful. It was something really uh, that I was really excited about. And I so as I started trying to think about my farm and what I wanted it to be, I wanted it to be something that incorporated all those previous you know, areas that I had worked in, something that supported people in their communities, something obviously around food, but also around food justice and, and bringing in elements of that and how could I support other people in my community and make things fair and equitable and accessible and all those kinds of things. So that was sort of the, the original early idea and something that has continued through now um, 10 years in. So Kate, what was it like starting out? Like, do you remember your first farmer's market? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I couldn't. What were you selling? <laughs> I was selling uh, vegetables and bundles of herbs. Um, my first farmer's market, I couldn't get into a farmer's market. I was so lame, um, with what I was producing. And also it was, again, one of those things where I said, I live out in the middle of the country and you wouldn't think of this space as a food desert, but it really is like at that time, 10 years ago, there was no one around me that was certified organic. There was no wow. one that was growing. Yeah, literally no one. Um, and it's, they were probably growing like monoculture crops of yeah, corn or soy. Absolutely. And like yep. Corn. Lots of corn, lots of soy, lots of GM ready, um, Roundup ready products um, that all supported dairy. I mean, dairy was at that time starting the decline that has, you know, continued on into this absolute death spiral for a lot of the farms around here. Um, I mean, dairy farms just are really, really struggling. And, and there's some bright sparks of people that are, that are trying to start their own um, local dairies. But aside from that, you know, it's a, it's a difficult business. So it was a strange time of transition, I think, for a lot of farms around here. Farmland was either sitting empty, you fallow because farms were going out of business or selling out, or they were doubling down on their dairy and trying to get bigger. Um, so I was looking for a place to sell my little bits of veg and I, and I couldn't find it. Um, I couldn't get into one. And so I just started one. Uh, we started the Sharon Springs Farmer's Market <laughs> in my, in my okay. town. Um, me and one friend um, who had just moved to the area and had um, had a very strong background in farming, and but had moved to the area with her husband and two kids. And so, and she was looking for a market also. So the two of us... Um, started this little farmer's market in Sharon Springs and it actually ran for five years until I felt that I could no longer manage it and no one else was you know willing to take on the reins of it so it kind of um it kind of sputtered out after that the I think the chamber of commerce took it on for one season and then it ended um because it's it takes a lot of work and a lot of time and devotion to do something like that and um, and I couldn't continue it. 
but yeah, that's what, and I, and literally my table was, I was that table that you walk up to in a farmer's market and you're like, oh my God, I just want to buy something from this person. Cause I feel so sorry for her. Just like three cucumbers and sad little <laughs> bunch of carrots. And she looks so proud of it. <laughs> you know, uh, it was bad. It was bad. But, um, but I mean, I think one of the things that really helped me and got me through those those early years was that in my sort of quest to find um, to find an element that that would support my ideas around food justice, um, I happened to read in the New York Times that there was this food program that was starting up in the city, uh, New York City. Um, particularly in areas that were food deserts and areas like Harlem um, that were particularly or, or historically neighborhoods of color. Um, and they were trying to bring food from upstate farmers to connect upstate farmers with people who were in food deserts. And it was at the time a really interesting and new concept um, for a CSA. They were allowing people with food stamps to have flexible, you didn't have to pay up front, you could pay in payments, you could pay only weekly if you wanted to. So, you know, you could drop out if you had extra bills that month and you just couldn't make it or your food stamps ran out for the month, you could just drop your CSA membership for that week. They, they were making it really accessible and flexible. And as I was reading this article and I was so excited about it, I realized that the base of this program was actually right up the road in Carlisle, like five miles from me and I was like wait a minute and so you know me with my little two cucumbers I was like I'm gonna be part of this and I reached out to them and I I ended up being one of their first farmers in the first year and I sold them 50 bunches of cilantro which was like my biggest sale to date and I felt really established Um, yeah yeah so so I ended up actually being involved sort of deeply involved with that program um for about five years and as each year as it you know as we got bigger and they took on more um you know clients in the city more people looking to be part of their CSA they increased their orders with me so we were able to grow together along you know a, a really nice trajectory and then Unfortunately, after about five years, they just weren't able to keep their model working and they did end up effectively ending that program and not not going out of business, but but going off in a different direction. So um, so they stopped that um, they stopped that CSA, but it was enough to give me a really solid start and some set income that I could count on. And so I think really, you know, that that was one of the things that helped me get through those early days for sure. Cool. Yeah. So other than the three cucumbers and 50 bunches of cilantro, <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about the other farm iterations that you've had over the years? Absolutely. Um, and that that was something that um, I think sort of my uh, my lack of experience um, really played into because I was trying to really figure out 
what it was that I loved about, I mean, I knew I loved working with plants. I loved being out every day and getting up with before the sun and being out and working in the fields, but, um, you know, really enjoying something and having a really clear focus and of, you know, making it financially viable are not necessarily the same thing. <laughs> so for me, it was, it was the process of trying to figure out really where did I fit? as a farmer and what worked for me. And so, uh, and I kept being told by people that you had to, you know, it was get big or go home. You can't make money on a tiny plot of land. You've got to keep getting bigger and keep increasing. And yet at the same time, I was having all kinds of, you know, I, we had, I had lots of students initially, um, lots of interns and woofers back in the early days, um, sometimes as many as like eight people um, staying in my little tiny two bedroom apartment and oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, like camping out in houses. I don't even know if all of this stuff was, was <laughs> really, really legal, but, um, but yeah, I remember like people sleeping in cars and taking turns who would sleep inside at night and, um, and camping and it was it was fun and intense and really difficult but um but it was always going to be a consistent issue you know like um how do you pay people for labor how do you get consistent work when you're barely when you're struggling to make money yourself um and to find what your own you know path is so i i kind of got into everything I started, I was growing vegetables and herbs and then got bigger, you know, decided I had to do animals. So I started um, raising chickens for meat and then also pigs. And then I was breeding pigs at one point. Wow. Uh, yeah. And selling um, breeding stock. So it started to be suddenly I was I was doing, you know, 20 different things. And I was sorry, trying to do farmer's market mm -hmm. and uh, direct sales in that way. And then wholesales to the, um, you know, the low income CSA and then trying to figure out other things, you know, how was I going to get other things moved? And so um, I just was spread thin. I was all over the place. And one of the things I would do is that when I had extra produce or fruit, uh, because I also was doing a lot of berries and um, uh, like foraging and selling some of that stuff, um, when I had things left over at the end of market, I would make them into a shelf stable product like jam or jelly or corn relish or whatever. Um, yeah, corn relish was one of my big things. It was delicious. Uh, yeah, yeah, I love I love making that. Um, and so yeah, so I started having just kind of this. It was one more thing to put on my table at market. Um, it was a way of trying to not just give everything to pigs at the end of the day, which is wonderful and lovely, and they deserve it. But also, you know, um, wanting to to create another income stream that made sense. So it all kind of came to a head for me where all at once I had these, you know, feeling like I had 20 balls in the air that I was juggling and I got limes 
I got really bad Lyme disease. And I, at the time had a doctor that told me I did not have Lyme's. Um, and so I spent about two years really, really, really chronically sick, um, struggling, trying to make things come together, um, exhausted all the time. And during that time period was when I had to really sit back and evaluate what was working and what didn't. And I stopped keeping animals. I sold the breeding stock, the entire herd. I um, processed what was left and had full freezers of meat for a while. Um, and then really sat back and evaluated, like, what was it that made sense for me? And in the end, what made sense was actually, strangely, um, the herbal stuff and the value added stuff, like taking things that I grew and making products from them because they were shelf stable. If they didn't sell one day, they just went back in the car and came back on the shelf the next week. Um, I could sell them to stores. I could make it at 10 o'clock at night if I wanted to, you know, I wasn't dependent. I was less dependent on the sort of uh, variabilities around labor and access to help. So um, I could do things on my own schedule when it worked for me, when I wanted to do it, rather than trying to fit it into this small window of time. So yeah, so that was really, I guess, the turning point. And from then on now has become the sort of current iteration of Weathertop Farm, which is a small herb, farm with a little bit of fruit um, and a commercial kitchen where we take the things that we grow and make stuff from them. Cool. Yeah. So that um, switch from produce to value-added products, is that what you say would brought you to herbalism or was it your experience with Lyme disease? Like what brought you yeah. to herbs as medicine, not just as um, food products or yeah, it kind of, it was, it was both. I've always been interested in herbs as medicine. Um, and I've always had little kind of container gardens where I lived and I would do the sort of like really typical stuff, you know, like lavender and chamomile and, you know, the kind of things that a lot of people are really familiar with about the, I would say the most mainstream type herbal stuff. And then after my experience with limes and the sort of um, the way that whole thing went down in terms of my treatment and the way the sort of um, needing to advocate for myself and find alternative ways um, to make myself feel better because I wasn't getting what I needed from the sort of mainstream medical complex. Shocker. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that was the, those two things kind of came together. And then from a farming perspective, herbs are amazingly, for the most part, amazingly easy to grow. Mm -hmm. um, most of them, or a lot of them, I should say, are perennial. They are cut and come again. So you can get many, many crops from a really small square footage. So from a farming perspective, that's really, that was really enticing to me as well. And they are tasty and they're useful and you can really, you know, get into this, um, this sort of space where you can help people to advocate for themselves, for their own health. Um, 
in ways that are are natural and easy and um, accessible. So, you know, it was uh, it was kind of again like all these things coming together. And as I got more interested in herbs um, and growing them and using them, it just kind of continued into a deeper relationship with the plants. The more time I spent with herbs and learning about them, the more absolutely you know, intoxicating. I found it. I just was, was really <laughs> just, and still am just really, really, um, amazed by plants and what they can do for us and how they help us and, um, and how little they really need back from us, which is, yeah. is sort of this amazing relationship that you, you don't always find in real life. So, um, so yeah, it's been beautiful for me. So Kate, what do you think about that whole go big or go home? mantra? Woo. I think it depends on what you're doing and what you want to do. Um, I mean, I think, I think the whole, the whole American system of monocropping and massive, massive acreage is, is insanity. Um, insanity in terms of what it's, uh, it's just inherently unsustainable. It's, in so many ways, financially unsustainable, environmentally unsustainable. Um, it just doesn't make sense to have governments su subsidizing crops to sit in warehouses to, you know, this whole sort of system, um, not even getting into the ideas that, that, that most all of those massive monocrops are genetically modified, which, which are just from, in my opinion, from an environmental standpoint, lunacy. Um, you know, this, the spreading of chemicals at the rate that go along with GMOs, I mean, it's just, again, unsustainable for so many reasons. And so um, I think it's what, it's what's hard for small farms because it's really difficult to find your space when you are very small, you know? Um, like you how had to you, sorry to interrupt, but you had to create your space with the farmer's market, you know, I when you did. Start yeah. And I, and, and how do you, when you are really small, like if you're growing vegetables, um, how, how do you compete in that? You know, uh, you need a lot of space to do certain things, you know, um, winter squash, <laughs> you need space, right? It's got to yeah. spread out. Um, it's so labor intensive, especially if you're doing it the way I was doing it by hand, um, initially, you know, avoiding as much as possible, like, um, plastic beds and, you know, so everything was done by hand, um, and it's, and with no chemicals and yeah, it can, it can be hard. It's hard on your body. It's, it's hard to do that. And when you're working so hard and you're not, making enough money to really survive that can be discouraging and and soul destroying so so you have to find a way to make money if you want to do it really small scale you have to find a way to actually make money because nobody yeah. can do it i guess one of the, the good things about being small though is you can be nimble in a way and like find your niche. Absolutely. Can, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was, I had the freedom to do whatever, uh, you know, I could sit back and evaluate and say, you know what? I can't believe it, but I sold more corn relish than corn, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like, 
Wow. Yeah. That right. actually was, it fit my skill set. It fit my lifestyle. It fit my, you know, work access, you know, all the things it actually fit better. And I made more money at it. So for me, it seemed to be like, okay, this is something that makes sense. Now, how do I figure out to do that as a job, you know, to, to make that work as a business in the long term? Because, you know, you, you have to keep growing and getting bigger. And then the bigger you get, the more your expenses are. And so, again, it's like that scale. What is that scale that, that yeah. works for you? That's for you. Yeah. yeah. I, I heard somebody say in regards to, um, to dairy, he was a farming guy who was like, it's either go big or go home or stay small and stay home. And, and but, but you can make like, if you, stay, if you, if you have the right, um, small farm thing where everything works together, like our Amish neighbors, mm-hmm. like they have a, they have a couple cows and they have, you know, some sheep and they have vegetables and he, he sells vegetables on the you know at a stand but it all kind of like goes together and there's no like whereas i can drive down the street and there's you know if i go up up eight there's like a cow there's whole like a thousand cows on a, on a paddock you right know? stinks you know for miles yeah <laughs> either side and there's acres of just corn or soy yeah yeah and people are taking out loans for a massive massive huge um barns with robotic milking machines and so that they can do a thousand cows you know who who maybe don't get outside anymore you know there's no pasture involved in that system that is just another step away from the natural evolution of, you know, of, of the dairy, I guess the unnatural (laughs) evolution of the dairy business. Um, And then there are, yeah, there are some people that are doing it right. Um, There's a place called Calbella in um, Jefferson here in New York state. Um, They have a small herd. I think they're eighth generation, maybe farmers and they grow, they have cows that are jerseys with a high fat content and and they make butter and they've managed to make this beautiful high quality butter that they sell in stores and um and just recently actually my friend that i mentioned um was the first person in the farmer's market with me um her family has a dairy and they've been doing the standard thing and dumping milk to meet quotas and all the crazy stuff and Uh, Because if you produce too much milk, you actually get docked money. Figure that one out. Um, So they, she's actually finally found a way to do it. And just in the last month, she started bottling their own milk and they are now selling it uh, at Cooperstown Farmer's Market. So you can get beautiful cream line pastured uh, milk from from lovely cows so so i think that there are some bright sparks of hope for for things like that but all in all it's it's hard it's hard it's a lot of work and and financially very risky yeah this is bringing up the topic of adaptability like how do you stay adaptable so that you can survive and grow and i'm wondering how you did it. You mentioned um, you realized sometimes the corn relish or the value-added products were offering uh, 
you more income than the produce. So like, what does your reflection process look like and how do you stay adaptable? Oh, well, I mean, I think there are a few things that, that are, that become really important. One is record keeping, which I am uh, first to tell you, I'm absolutely shite at that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, my ideas of keeping records a lot of times are like the back of an old envelope, you know, like national grid (laughs) bill and I'm writing notes on that. So, um, uh, but uh, keeping records is important because, and, and this is an exercise that I went through recently where um, I started trying to really hone in on what were the things that were working and what were the things that weren't. And if you asked me, what is your best seller? And, um, you know, I would come up with an answer really quick. And then when we sat down and really started plugging every invoice into a spreadsheet and really breaking it out and looking at what was selling where... I was wrong. I was close, but I was wrong. Wow. <laughs> so, so yeah. And that's even, you know, that's, that's like eight, nine years in that was just recently. So, um, so keeping records is really important, but also being willing to acknowledge that you're wrong, uh, I think yeah. is very important <laughs> because there are, I can't tell you the number of products that I have made in the last 10 years that I was like, oh man, this is going to kill it. This, I'm making my millions on this. It's flying <laughs> off the shelves, right? <laughs> and, and you know, and I bought so many ingredients and so much stock because to be ready for the, you know, mass exodus. And, and it just, it died. Like it was so bad. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, sometimes that happens and you just have to accept it and be like, yeah, yeah, I thought that was a great idea and maybe it is, but it's not the right time for it or I didn't market it right or, you know, I didn't have the right customer base, whatever it is, you know, just take a loss on it and move on. Like, let it go, sister. So, um, yeah, I think humility is important and accepting that and just being like, you know, okay, so I tried it. Yeah, it not dwelling yeah. on it, not just keep trying the same thing over and over, even if it's not working. Right, right. Because that's a surefire way to get yourself locked in. I mean, for me also, I am a big believer in diversification of my income stream. Um, I learned that. Yeah, I learned that the hard way. You know, when I was working really closely with that um, low-income food program that I loved so much, I loved everything about the social justice and the food access and all the things, and it just made me feel so good to be part of that program that it just made sense to keep um, allocating more and more of my time and resources and what I was growing to that program. And when when they decided to shift gears, it was literally like, May of the growing year. And I mean, I had plants in the ground planned out for the year. The majority of my income would have been coming from that, you know, that, that relationship. And they just kind of said, it's not working. It's not going to happen. And it ended um, literally within a week. So suddenly I found myself um, five years in with the vast majority of my income stream, uh, gone 
and had to be two weeks notice let alone a season notice yeah yeah exactly so and stuff in the ground that needed to be harvested and and i don't know where i'm gonna sell it now um because a lot of it was really specific herbs and things that were um particular to the client base that we were working with so um so yeah so it, it it taught me that i needed to figure out um a variety of ways to survive financially, which increasingly has become more important, particularly right now, like in the year of COVID, right? Um, Because the way I diversified was that I I spread myself into a couple income streams. I do direct sales. Um, I eventually stopped doing farmer's markets because the products that I make uh, tend to be things that people don't buy every single week. So, you know, um, I made the vast majority of what I make are tonics. They are like uh, shrubs and switchel and fire cider. Um, they're different concentrates that can be used for, you know, as a health tonic or an immune support. Um, everything from making cocktails to making a really, you know, lovely, tasty, healthy anti inflammatory tea. So, those things, while wonderful and great, are not the things that people tend to buy every week the way you would your weekly vegetable or meat shop. So, True. yeah, so it took me a while to realize that, you know, um, initially at a farmer's market, I had really great sales. Um, but then as time passed, well, I still had wonderful customers and people that would stop by and say hi to me every week and chat and we'd have a great time. They weren't buying every week because yeah. there's only so much of my product that people tend to use. So I needed, I, I realized that I needed access to a larger group of people that have a constantly um, changing uh, client base or customer base. So I stopped doing regular farmer's markets and moved more towards a like festival type model where I would do uh, one day or weekend festivals over a much larger geographic area, you know, go down, set up and move on. Um, And that also enabled me to develop customers in an area you know every time I do a festival and people say I love your stuff I always say great what's the best local store where you think I should sell and I would get their information from that I would write it down on the back of my national grid bill and (laughs) (laughs) try and find it afterwards in my cash box where's that piece of paper yeah Um, yeah and you know and then I would follow up with stores and so you know, now I sell in about roughly 50 locations, whether it be um, some restaurants and bars where they serve them, some distilleries that I work with in terms of cocktail making mixers, but also um, a lot of health food stores and co-ops and things like that. So, you know, I I did the in-person stuff, I did the wholesale stuff, and then I to continue my whole idea about supporting people in the community and also advocacy and, you know, developing some of that stuff. I started a classroom um, for a lot of years at my old farm, which was, you know, using land at my parents. I um, used to do plant walks, uh, but I didn't have an actual space where people could come. So, um, 
three and a half years ago, I bought the farm where I am now, which is, yay, uh, yay. an actual <laughs> location with a big old house and um, 30 acres. And one of the first things that I did, um, actually the first thing I did was uh, I installed a commercial kitchen so things could keep taking over and, and producing product and then the and then set up a classroom so that we could start doing some real actual classes and be a space not just for me because I can talk for hours but you know that shit gets boring after a while right so you want to hear other people's voices and other perspectives and and that's part of the community is is creating a space for other people to do that who may not have access to a room um so yeah so that's sort of the third prong of of what i do it's like in-person wholesale education and then covid came along and decided to flip everything so yeah so all that in-person stuff classroom went out the window um we started last year we had one class in january or january early feb and it was the um the first class of the season it was sold out it was a great response um all about growing hemp and and medicinally how that works in the body and all the kinds of things that you can do with it and um and then we had to cancel the entire rest of the series because we didn't know what was going to happen. And, um, and then you start worrying about all the, you know, the realities, like it's not just a matter of, you know, I don't want to be a place where people come and, and get sick. That's yeah. not what we're here that's for. Like, so that's like against, yes. Yeah, the antithesis of what we're trying to do. Come learn about herbal medicine and catch COVID. So, yeah. you know, so <laughs> everything yeah. had to end. Yeah, hopefully not. Um, so everything had to end in that way. And then, uh, you know, all festivals, it was like dominoes sitting here in front of my computer in March. You know, the first event of the year was due in Rochester in March. And I got the email that they were canceling. And then from that point on, it was kind of like just this opening my computer with, with my stomach just <laughs> dropped as they would come in. And so, um, you know, in 2019, I did 28 festivals. It was pretty much like every weekend throughout all the busiest time of the year, you know, from spring through Christmas almost was every every weekend something going on some weekends two things going on and then um yeah last year none so yeah so so that was talk about being nimble and and figuring it all out but uh yeah so so I was lucky enough that I had a website and I had a you know little Instagram and that people went out of their way to really support local this year. I mean, I think political things aside, um, one of the things that was really beautiful about this past year was um, seeing how people really came together and supported local as much as they could. Uh, I saw so many people that had not 
really made, you know, they said I like local, but really wouldn't make the effort that, that did, that were coming out and saying, yeah, I feel like I need to buy um, gift certificates to my local restaurant, even though they're shut and, you know, and, and just try and help them out and, and do all the things that I can and lots of people shopping local for Christmas. And so I was able to kind of, you know, squeak through. Yeah. Nice. Which, you know, we'll see. <laughs> Now it's year two of pandemic. We'll see how things go. I think things are starting to, I think things are going to open up back again. People are trying to, starting to find their feet and figure out how can we do this safely and successfully and make it something that'll work for customers and for businesses, uh, you know, so that people can still kind of start together. But um you know, I don't like the phrase new normal, but th there it is. There, there's going to be some kind of different way of, of carrying on and getting back to trying to create something. So, so yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's interesting and, and the increase in trying to put more of a focus on online stuff has been a real learning experience for me. I'm not computer savvy. I mean, it, it took me 10 minutes to figure out how to zoom this with you. Tonight. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta press the unmute button. <laughs> that's right, that's right. It's not the back of an envelope. I can't figure it out. <laughs> trying to do the like oh man just seemed it seemed tough so I guess that's part of it too is like being flexible and being willing to learn about that yeah yeah so this brings me to a question speaking of your the products that you uh -huh. offer now uh, one carnation is a switzel or a shrub <laughs> like a plant right it's a shrub I grow those um <laughs> Yeah. So actually the, the way I started making those, they are drink mix concentrates. Um, and uh -huh. the way I got into them was I, I went on this path when I was doing, you know, that sort of post lines evaluation of my business and, and where I wanted to go with it. I, I got really interested in the idea of doing something that was really tied historically, um, to this area, you know, in terms of really specifically farmers. And I started doing research about like, what were traditional, or are there any traditional farmers foods or things that were connected with farming? You know, I mean, you think about um, different countries and, and different areas and there's, everyone has their own sort of specialties and things that they enjoy eating or making and I was wondering you know like here in the northeast like what are some of the things that are really connected to farm history and to being farmers and the one thing that kept coming up over and over in my research was switchel which is um I always think of it as like the original Gatorade it is uh, refreshing, depending on who you talk to, refreshing. Because <laughs> some people, I do occasionally get like old timers that come up to my booth at festivals and they're like, Switchel, I remember that. That was disgusting. <laughs> hey, hey, thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Move on, move on, move on. <laughs> yes, exactly. Don't say that too loud. Um, 
but uh, it's a drink <laughs> that is based on um, some kind of regional sweetener. And this is where it gets kind of cool because you start looking and some areas of the country would use sorghum. Um, here in the Northeast, a lot, you'd see maple syrup. Mm-hmm. Other places you would see honey. Um, so depending on where you were, there's like a sweetener and some vinegar for tartness mm-hmm. and then just sometimes just water. That's the basic, um, you know, recipe is just vinegar and water and something sweet. And they would make these jugs of it and, um, a bit of ginger too, sorry, um, for that, like spice and warmth and, and a little heat. Um, so you would have those few ingredients and they would make a jug of this stuff and keep it out in the field. And it was known sort of colloquially as haymakers punch. Ah. When people would be out in the summer in the really hot weather, cutting their, you know, doing the hay and they would take breaks and they would drink this drink that was kind of spicy and a little sweet and really refreshing and it was it was like that original Gatorade that thing that you would drink on breaks to refresh you and keep you going during hot work and so I thought I just became really entranced with this whole idea I just thought it was beautiful and um, sort of something that I wanted to reproduce in my own way so being the the herby witch that I am I can't just leave it at that so you have to um, get the other herbs in there and the other things that are flavorful, but also really good for you. So we make all kinds of switchels, um, with things like hibiscus and turmeric. And I use either local honey from an apiary that, um, keeps bees at my parents' farm. Um, and I also use certified organic maple from a local farm as well. So it's a way that I can connect with other local farmers, but also incorporate their stuff into my product. So I'm supporting more than just myself with everything that I make. Um, and then also, you know, making great flavors and things that are really good and healthy for you and anti-inflammatory and, you know, the goodness and of elderberry, all that antiviral properties and all those wonderful things and you make it into a drink that's easy and accessible um for me one of the things that's really i I think one of the biggest stumbling blocks for a lot of people with herbal medicine is that it kind of tastes like shit a lot of the time (laughs) you know herbalists are shameless about it too they're like Right. It's good for you. It's good for you. And then, yeah. you know, who, well, who was it? Was it Mary Poppins? A spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. Right. So yeah, I, yeah, I think a lot about like how to make medicine, um, how to make herbs taste good enough that people not only are willing to take it, that they want to take it. Yeah. So you're, you're converting the old timers with your fruity and delicious yeah exactly and it's stuff that's good for you you know it's raw organic apple cider vinegar it's great for the gut it's all this kind of stuff and then you know you're you're doing something that's organic that's um healthy for you you know i would take switchel over a coke any day you know um so so yeah it's like all the by the spoonful or 
Yeah, you can, depending on what it is. Some people like to take, like the elderberry is um, in a lot of ways could be subbed out for an elderberry syrup. Um, you know, take a spoonful of it when you feel like you have a cold coming on um, or you can throw a splash in the bottom of a mug and pour in some boiling water and drink it like a hot tea. Or, you know, you can um, you can just add a little a splash in seltzer you can make a crazy good Moscow mule, you know, that's <laughs> and spicy and good. So, so yeah. you can do all kinds of things with it. And that's one of the nice things about it is that it's, it's pretty open to interpretation depending on what you want to do. And so, so what's a shrub? How's that different than a switchel? Um, shrub is really similar, except that it doesn't necessarily have ginger in it. It tends oh. to be more fruit based. It's more yeah. sweet. Um, doesn't um i use cane sugar in the shrubs um rather than honey or maple um so there's just kind of a different flavor profile and people tend to use them more a uh, more as a, a flavor kind of um component a little bit less medicinally a little bit more as a yummy tasty thing that you can feel good about giving your kids yeah um yeah. So is, is that your best-selling product, your shrub and switchel? Uh, it depends on the time of the year, actually. things um, That's one of the things that I found out is that things uh, are, some things tend to be really seasonal. Um, those shrubs and switchels, um, depending on what they are used for, some of them are really uh, more popular in the summer, some more in the winter. Uh -huh. I make fire cider one of my base um, sort of original products is fire cider and that is definitely a seasonal thing you know yeah. I do a lot more of tell that us, in winter. tell us about fire cider yeah well you know all about fire cider miss AC um I've, I've had <laughs> it twice. you've had it once or twice right um it's it's an amazing you know vinegar concoction that is if there's a, a base recipe that um includes all these hot and spicy wonderful things um horseradish and garlic and you know um onions sometimes some citrus and then you know people go off on their own with the other additions that they make and one of the most amazing things that i love about fire cider is that i feel like most herbalists have their own you know their own spin on it and so you can take something that's as basic and as simple as fire cider and taste 20 people's fire cider and have 20 different flavors yeah. in your mouth, you know? Yeah. And so, um, so for me, that is like a kind of really cool regional herbalism. And you start seeing people using stuff that's local to their area and, um, you know, and things that are important to them depending on what you want to do, you know, herbally, medicinally, what you want to put out there, what your focus is. Sometimes it's like a beautiful springtime. Maybe it's not even like really a winter thing. Um, so yeah, so I think I think that is a, a really beautiful way for herbalists to express themselves and um, and make things their own. Something that's that's sort of the information of the commons, 
not to be yeah. trademarked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you can use use the name Firesider. I can now. use the name Firesider. Yay! That was one of the most wonderful things. Um, was that I used to call my stuff um, Fiery Cider, and you know, got a cease and desist letter, and just as I was kind of pondering what to do about that. Um, you know, as we know, uh, the well, evil shine. Tell us a little bit about that. Like what, what, because so, there are probably a lot of listeners who don't know what that whole thing is. Ah, about. well, okay. So, I mean, I, I liken it to Monsanto. I think it's, uh, it's the same thing. It's the idea of taking something that is of the commons, whether it be plants or any, you know, a recipe, something that is shared and greatly beloved by many people, and then tweaking it the tiniest bit and then trying to claim it as your own. So, so what happened was that a company um, in Massachusetts took the basic um, fire cider recipe and, um, and trademarked it. And then they started um, sending out cease and desist letters and uh, and suing, actively suing um, herbalists who were just trying to make a living, doing their thing, doing something that, you know, lots of other people do. And, um, you know, and and whether copyrights are valid or not as a, as a whole idea is, is a whole other story, but taking yeah. things that that you know that our information that is that belongs to the people yeah. you know um and and trying to make that your own and to stop other people from using it is um you know is is horrific it's it's absolutely yeah. ridiculous and and rude. <laughs> rude. yes very very and um and devastating for people financially yeah. you know being yeah. on the receiving end of um of a cease and desist letter, you know, again, talk about building a business for years and try, you know, and finally getting to a point where you're like, okay, I'm actually, um, I'm not laying awake every night worrying about finances, maybe only like two nights a week. And so (laughs) this is like definitely progress. And then getting a a letter, you know, that says you can no longer sell this thing. Um, That's one of your best selling products. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. So, I mean, it's, that whole thing was horrible and so stressful for so many people. And for me, for years, yeah, for years. And yeah, that's really, I mean, it's so expensive. Think of all the, the legal fees and all the things and the disruption to your life and, and, you know, and, the people that were in court, you know, weren't all from one geographic location. They were traveling for court dates, they were traveling for meetings, they were doing things. You know, all of that be, just becomes so overwhelming. And I admire all of them so much yes. for staying with it and, you know, fighting the good fight and mm-hmm. not giving up and not knuckling under and giving yeah. in um, because that would be so easy to do. And and for some people, it's not even a matter of being easy. It's It's a a reality that you just can't sometimes fight the giant, you know, it, it, when it's a David and Goliath thing and you're, you're David, you, you don't always win. <laughs> you yeah. just don't win. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I admire, I admire those, those women so much for what they did. Um, 
So yeah, I mean that, and and that's the same thing that you see with GMOs. That's the same thing you see with with all kinds of corporations coming into um, agriculture and and herbal businesses and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's always that's always going to be part of the fight, and I think that's always going to be the activism and the advocacy going forward. It's like how do we keep how do we keep um, you know keep a small space for small producers, you know, talking about like staying small and, and being successful at being small is that you have to like, you have to actively carve out a space and, and hold it, you know, aggressively hold that space and not let yourself be drawn under or pulled under, you know, because there, there are always going to be um, larger corporate influences that are going to be trying to push little guys like us out. Right. So, yeah. So um, in your many iterations of farming, one thing we didn't talk about was how you um, started hemp farming a couple of years ago when New York State legalized hemp. Yeah. And I was wondering if you want to tell us about that experience a little bit. Yeah, um, yeah, actually I um, wanted to grow hemp for a couple of years. I had been attending um, like the hemp growers conference in, in New York state and things like that. I was trying to figure out how to get a foot in the door. At that time, they had opened up a few licenses. Um, I think it was 500 maybe the first year and then they shut it down. It might even have been 100. Um, they opened it up. They get inundated with applications within a few days and shut down the process. So um I was sort of just waiting in the wings till I could get my application in there. So I did uh, eventually um, to, what was that? 2019 was the first growing year here at the farm. Um, I was really excited about it and um, really hopeful. Uh, just so excited to work with the plant um, on a quote unquote larger scale. Um, we grew a small number of plants, under 3,000 plants on a couple acres, spread out really well, um, all hand planted, hand uh, trimmed, hand harvested, you know, everything was all done by hand. Um, although uh, on plastic, just to try and keep down some weed pressure and make it a little bit more manageable, but still, you know, it was all done by hand. It was a beautiful plant to work with. I love working with um anything in the in the cannabis family i mean the plants are just gorgeous and they're so beautiful and so calm and and just going and sitting in the middle of a hemp field on a sunny day in the quiet is just i think delicious but smell uh, yeah yeah <laughs> you know very soothing and and wonderful um plant energy to work with but um and i believe very intensely that it is a plant that has so many medicinal benefits for so many people oh. and that was part of the goal was like how do we make this thing that is historically very expensive and how do we start to um, make that more accessible how do we get people involved and able to to have some of this plant at a different price point um, so I grew that first year with many, many friends. 
friends <laughs> who all were wonderful and came and helped and learned and and it was a beautiful um sort of process together and then um covid uh, and i had a good year and i was very lucky in the sense that we sold um the plants the vast majority of the plants um whole um you know literally harvested at the ground the whole plant is brought and loaded onto a truck that was then taken um you know off to the buyer and so that was wonderful because we had a, a lot of problems with drying capacity. Um, the plans we had made to dry turned out to be just not enough to meet the amount of hemp that we had grown. Um, we had a beautiful, really successful crop that was lovely and had produced a lot and then kind of trying to figure out what to do with it. Um, and we were by far from being the only person in that boat Um a lot of people got into growing hemp in New York state in 2019 and then found that there just was not the infrastructure to support it. Um, yet again, this idea of, you know, jumping into an industry and going to do really, really well. And then I know a lot of farmers that lost, um, lost a, a huge amount of money on growing hemp that year. Um, and then subsequently this past year in 2020 with COVID, it was really unclear what was going to happen um, with, you know, who knew if there would be people to harvest. There are a lot of farms that were in really desperate shape because the workers that have come to their farm every year to help them were no longer there. Um, and so I think for a lot of people, a lot of small farms, um, 2020 was was definitely a like just hunker down see how it goes see what we can do scale back as much as you can while other people have had amazing crazy beautiful big years like scale up scale up some people like me were like okay let's pull back and see what let's do the minimum of what we need to do because we don't know what's going to happen um so i grew very little hemp last year and um, as it turns out, the market has really, you know, market is talking about you have to be ready to fail at things. The yeah. market is flooded. Um, there's no good price for hemp at this point. Um, and then now, um, actually, today is the final day for um, comments to the uh, to New York State um the health department, they're actually instituting new legislation around hemp that I feel will decimate the small farms um, who are trying to grow. Um, at this point, as of right now, they're saying um, flower sales will be illegal in New York state, um, which is really the only way for small farms to make money. Um, yeah. Hemp is most definitely, I think anything in the cannabis industry is um definitely geared toward the big business, agri-farms, uh, places with lots of money behind you. The small farm is going to find it very, very, very difficult to compete at any kind of um, reasonable level, just because um, it is incredibly expensive. It's expensive to get started. Um, seeds are a dollar a piece or more. Some are two or three dollars a piece. Um, if you do clones, you know, you're looking at several bucks a piece. 
So you start adding in all your costs as you go along from start to finish. Processing is expensive. Making a finished um, CBD oil through a processor is incredibly expensive. Um, initially, that first year, I was quoted between seventy and ninety thousand dollars, depending on who you talk to, to have that processed into CBD oil, which was just not even going to be feasible for someone at my level, um, nor what I wanted to do. You know, I mean, as I was saying, like, this is about a medicine that should get to people to be accessible. It is something that you can make really easily at home. You do not have to go to a big fancy processor and do some kind of, you know, strip. Well, I guess that's the whole point for the, you know, (laughs) to keep the, the people with all the capital to do that, you know, absolutely. So, yeah. And farm and so on to keep, to keep the monopoly with them. I agree. I think, you know, when you start t- looking at really large amounts of money, that's when, um, you know, the people, the small guy is, is not going to be able to compete and is going to be pushed out. And so the small guys got really innovative and people started making their own, um, CBD products and people started, selling flour and doing all kinds of things. I mean, we were doing um, classes about him. That was, like I said, the first and only class we had last year inside was um, called Hemp or Hype. And it was all about um, CBD and, and, you know, what was really, what was it good for? How did it work? What was the bullshit, you know, and marketing and, um, and it sold out. And we had plans to do lots more classes around that. Um, but, you know, like I said, that had to cancel. So I yeah. think I think people are interested in it. They want to learn about it. They want to use it. They want to access it. And that, um, but the price point for most people is prohibitive. And yeah. I'd hoped that with more people getting into farming and growing, that that would become more accessible, that the price point would drop and, um you know, normalized a little bit. And instead what's happened is that the price point hasn't really dropped significantly. Um, They've just shut down and stopped buying from small producers. So the big um, farms that are vertically integrated are growing and processing. You know, they got growers licenses and processing licenses. And so they are growing and processing for themselves and they are still selling in the market and they're not accepting anyone else's hemp for the most part to process. And so the smaller people are effectively cut out of that that whole loop. Um, And so you had all these little cottage industries that sprung up and those are now going to be um, ended by this new legislation. You will need to have a separate there's not just a grower's license there's a producer's license and a processor's license and a um a sales license if you want to sell hemp cbd products you're going to have to also be licensed um so yeah there's there's a lot of levels of legislation that are going to be coming in um i see i mean i i've seen some real pushback from industry groups and maybe that's enough but um, I think the hemp industry that was that was the hope of many small farms is is going to pretty much end in New York State this year. So, you know, if you want to grow hemp, move to Vermont. It's my advice. New York State just you know it's got a lot of yeah a lot of 
government things that are not very appealing, but right. it's the way the it is. Empire State. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Bureaucratic bullshit state. Yes, welcome to Empire. Um, yeah, and I mean, and, and some of that is good. We also have some of the best social programs in the country. So, you know, to do that, you need money. So, so I get it, but, um, you know, that, that comes at a cost that sometimes um, bureaucracy just really sucks and yeah. needs people to advocate and let let people know. Because it may sound really good sitting in an office that you are creating some legislation that works and that that is good, you know, is for a reason. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a bad reason. It doesn't have to have, um, you know, negative intent, but, um, but real world practice is is often not aligned with that so right. that's why that's why we keep getting out there right and yeah. going and protesting and letting people know and sending in submitting oh. comments and yeah doing all that kind of stuff oh yeah so kate we're yeah. uh, we're about at the end of our time now um we're just wondering so our listeners can find you on the internet uh where you know where where can they find you and where can they to get your products and so on. Yeah. Um, so my uh, website is Weathertop Farm NY New York at uh, or dot com. Sorry. And that is also my email address, Weathertop Farm NY at Gmail. Okay. Um, cool. And on the website, there is a page that says retail partners and that lists mm, all the stores where we sell mostly. If I, I, you know, I'm not always great at keeping it up, but I try to. Um, and I would definitely say follow us on Instagram. Same thing, real easy. It's weather to at Weathertop Farm and Why. So you can find us there. And that's where we're going to be announcing some of our new internship programs for the upcoming year. Um, cool. Just real quick plug. Yeah, looking at creating a space for people. Um, you know, I've thought a lot in the last year about social justice and access and, and equitable access to land and reparations and all the kinds of things. And, and where do I fit into that as a white middle-class woman and, and all my privilege and, and what I can do with that. So um, there are some cool things coming up about where we're gonna create um, some space for people of color or people who have been historically excluded from access to land to actually come and um, use some of the space here as their own to have a place oh, to cool. live and work. And yeah, so um, so that's still under construction, literally physically under construction. Um, but <laughs> I'm hoping to get that together um, you know, in the next couple of months. And we also will have more shorter term options for people to come and intern and learn about an herb business, you know, and help out. So yeah, it's gonna be good. Lots of good things planned for this year. Great. I hope it's a great uh, 2021 season. Thank you. Me too. I hope so. <laughs> well, thank you, Kate, for being on the Plant Time yeah, Oh, Thank you very much. I'm so glad you asked me to do this. I really appreciate it. And, um, and, and it was nice to hear your voices in between lots of mine. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the point. We like that part. That's we great. like hearing your voice. So thank you so much again. And we'll talk soon. Bye. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye.